Well, over the last few weeks, we've been talking through the book of Ezra, and I shared with you last week the idea that Ezra is probably uh, the writer of not only Ezra, but the book of uh, Nehemiah, and that basically it's a trilogy, and we are smack dab in the middle of the middle part of his writing, and we've watched where Ezra has, um, they have finished the temple, they got everything ready, and then everything stopped. And then God called Ezra to go to the promised land to bring a group of people back to infuse new blood, to call them to establish the culture of the Jewish people, the the nation that we are watching being uh, in battles even today in our news. And we watched uh, as they, as God worked through pagan kings to bring about his good hand. And that's the phrase that we keep seeing again and again. And last week we saw Ezra had been outfitted and transported the people back. They'd gotten to the land. They'd come to the temple. They had worshipped. They brought the, the goods to the temple to, to put them in place for the next phase. But everything in Jerusalem is not good. There's a problem. And that's what we deal with in Ezra chapter 9 today. And it's a difficult passage because we look at it and we think to ourselves, well, what's the big deal? But we have to be careful not to look at this passage from our perspective in 21st century America, but try to understand who they are and why they saw what they did and why God spoke into that moment and said, hey, we got a problem. we got to deal with it. So look at Ezra 9 with me. It's only 15 verses this morning, but there's a lot here. It begins in verse 1. He says, After these things have been done, the officials approached me, Ezra said. The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Paradites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. And Ezra said, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Here's what Ezra does. He identifies a problem. Now, some of you want to read this passage and think, well, what's his big deal? Who does it matter who we marry? Who does it matter who we hang out with? Who does it matter who our closest friends are? Ezra says, God's told us the issue. Coming on the heels of Ezra's return to the land, they've experienced this amazing worship experience. They've sacrificed animals, not something we want to do. They've worshiped in the presence of God, something hopefully we have been doing. They've sensed the amazing hand of God in their lives again, but there's a problem. And the problem is this, the people who are supposed to be leading the land, the ones who are supposed to be guiding the people to follow God's ways, have allowed sin to settle in their lives. They've taken pagan wives. Now you're going, why does that matter? They've allowed these individuals into their lives. And you're going, wait, so he's talking racism here. No, it has nothing to do with race. I want you to understand the peoples of the Middle East pretty much all come from one guy uh, way back, and they just had different parentage. So it's not a racial issue. Don't read it that way. It's easy in our culture to try to go that way because we get baited into that conversation. But that's not what the issue is here. The issue is the lineage of Abraham is either the people of God or not the people of God. The ones who are following God are the ones who are not. And the problem they 
they hear is, is they have joined themselves. And, and I want you to understand the, the Hebrew here indicates that the people he's talking about are God's holy sacrifice. Most of us think of a sacrifice as what we give in an offering or what we give as a gift. And God tends to look at his people as the sacrifice themselves. So God looked at his people. And what they've done is they've taken themselves and mixed their lives with pagan practices, with pagans. And you're going, what's the big deal? They've made decisions that have caused their faithfulness to the Lord to become watered down. Now, whether it was out of a lack of Jewish women to marry or just a disobedience on their part, many of them have joined themselves to women who were not committed to the things of God, who were not followers of the God of the Bible, and they've said, we're okay with that. And Ezra says, God's not okay with that. Whew. I told somebody this week I wasn't looking forward to this message today because I knew it was not going to be a pleasant one to speak about. But when you deal with a book, that's what happens. And so here's what happens is their choice is they have watered down their commitment to the Lord. Now, I don't know about you. My wife and I have been married for almost 25 years, 25 years next month. Yes, have pity on my wife, okay? I'm okay with that. But here's the thing is the longer you live with someone, the more you're around them, the more they what? Influence you. They impact you, both good and not so good, right? And what's happened in this day for Ezra is the people have allowed themselves to become watered down in their faith. We've been talking about renewal and revival through this series, by the way, if you'd have forgotten the big theme here. The big idea is how do we follow the Lord? How do we see him work in our lives? And Ezra says, we've got a problem. And so when Ezra heard this, now get this, Ezra hears this and he's like, oh, okay, cool. No. He hears this and he tears his clothes. That's a Jewish way of saying he's mourning. He rips out his beard. Doesn't that sound like fun, guys? Some of you are going, I'm not ripping any hair. I don't have hardly left, okay? Uh, But we're not going to do that. And he says, and then he sat down and mourned for the day. He took the actions of the people who were in the land already serious. He took the words of God seriously. Again, not a racial issue. It's a spiritual one where the child of a most high God has said, I'm okay watering down my faith. I'm okay watering down my practice. I'm okay watering down what should be holy in my life to being just okay. And they yoked themselves with non-believers. So, Ezra identifies the problem. Then he informs their disgrace. Look at verse 5. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting in my garment, with my garment and my cloak torn, and fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord God, saying, Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. So after hours of mourning the sinful choices of God's people, here's what Ezra does. Now, some of us would go, I got there, I saw what was going, and here's my response. Y'all got to get things straightened out. Y'all are a mess. You with me? We see the problem, what are we going to do? We're going to call it, we're going to name it, we're going to call them out, and we're going to tell them what they need to do. Ezra doesn't do that. Ezra mourns the sin of the people. Why? Because he's one of the people. He mourns their choices and he puts himself in their, their shoes and says, we have a problem. 
He stands in the moment and he lifts his hands and says, what in the world are we doing? We are messing up. We are not following God's ways. God has told us his truth. And it would have been easy for him to thunderously proclaim the sins of the people and say, y'all got to get it right. Instead, he says, we have a problem. Did you see what it says? He says, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. Why? For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. He puts himself in the shoes of the entire nation. Ezra has just arrived there. From indications in the book is he doesn't have a pagan wife. He's not guilty of what they're doing. And yet, because he's part of God's people, when he gets there, their sin becomes, you with me? His sin. Well, and see, in our day and age, we think, well, I didn't do it, so it's not my problem. It's y'all's problem. There's something about being joined together as people, not just in husband and wife relationships, but as covenant relationship in a church that we carry with us the sin and the struggle of each other, whether we like it or not. When one messes up, it affects all of us. When one succeeds, it blesses all of us. There's something about the kingdom of God that we walk together, talk together, live together. And what he does, he says, this is our iniquity. This is our guilt. This is our problem. And Ezra, his way forward is not to throw accusations, but to say, we've got to do something better. We've got to turn from. We've got to change. We've got to move in a new direction. We've got to find the better way. And so what Ezra then does is he invokes God's goodness. He says, God, we don't want you to leave us. Look at verse 7. For from the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. Our iniquities, we, our kings, our priests, have been given to the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to the captivity, to the plundering, to utter shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving from our, in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. What Ezra does real quickly here is he comes back and says, let me remind you of how we are. (laughs) He could be describing you and me, by the way. As he describes it pretty well. He says, here's what we've done for years, for centuries. We as God's people have heard God's voice. We've answered God's voice. We've followed God's voice. We said, let's go with you. And we get faithful for a while. And then what do we do? We start to fade out. We start to fade away. We start to, to mess up. We start to make poor choices. We start to let our, our passion for the Lord become cold. He says, God, but you haven't forsaken us. You've allowed us to go into slavery. You've allowed us to be taken to captive. You've allowed us to have these kind of things. And, and by the way, God, 60, 70 years ago, you let us come back and reestablish the temple and have the altar and begin to worship God again. And here we are again. And now, just a few years later, we're back where we were. What is it about us as humans that we hear God's voice, we get serious about God, and then just sometime later we become cold again? That's what they're struggling with. Instead of standing strong in the Lord, they've caved. Instead of marrying the way they should have or waiting to find someone who was following God, they said, well, we'll just settle for this. And instead of being bold, they compromised. But through it all, God hadn't forgotten them. 
He says in verse 10 to 14, we have tested God's patience. Here's what we've done. We've tested God's patience. We find our memory verse in this passage, by the way. So you get to see it in context here. But look at verse 10. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give their daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and neither seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave for an inheritance to your children forever." And after all that has come upon our evil deeds and our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the people who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there would be no remnant nor any escape? See, God had caused the door to be opened for them to return to the land. They had gotten there. They had rebuilt the temple. They had reestablished worship. They had begun to do this right stuff that we're supposed to do as followers of God. And then they began to do what we so often struggle with, don't we? Our passion becomes cold. We begin to fade away from God. To let the things of God become, as the old hymn says, strangely dim to us. They married pagans. God says, that's not the way it's supposed to be. God says, you're supposed to be committed to me. You want to bring the good into your life, not the bad. He was calling them to live a full and committed life with a belief and practice that lines up with God's word. And truly, they deserved a much more harsh word than they were receiving, just like, let's be honest, we do. But God says, I still love you. But they're still testing his patience. And then Israel, uh, excuse me, Israel then implores God's mercy in verse 15. Look at the verse 15 with me. O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. He says, God, let your mercy continue among us. His prayer is one of instruction of knowing that God's goodness is there. He says, God, you you could have just just wiped us out, but you haven't. You've got something for us, but we do have a problem we need to deal with. And we're going to deal with that in next week in chapter 10. If you want to read ahead, oh my goodness, the solution is harsh. Maybe the Lord will call us back before next Sunday and I'll have to deal with it. So what do we do with this passage? I, I mean, I, can I, I kind of want to confess something to you. This, this, this study in the book of Ezra was something God laid on my heart last year, and I wasn't sure why, but I believe it has to do with dealing with things in my life as much as the things in our life, that we've got to be people who are serious about the things of God, that are committed to the ways of God, that are saying, I don't want to settle for something else. I want the best that the Lord has for me. Don't you? So what do we do with this? Here's three thoughts that I think come from this chapter. And the first one is this. If we're going to see renewal and revival in our lives, if we're going to see God move in our lives again, we have to do this. We have to check ourselves against God's word. Now, what do I mean by that? 
Every one of us has a standard of what's okay and what's not okay in our lives. You do, I do. What's okay with you? What's good for you? What's good in your life? We all love to think, well, this is what's acceptable to me. I want to tell you something this morning. It really does not matter what I think is acceptable or not acceptable in my life. Because there's an independent and higher standard that I'm called to follow as a child of God. And that's found in God's Word. My challenge to you this morning is to always be a person who checks yourself against God's Word. Now, what do we mean by that? It means this, that we step back and go, okay, here's what I think. Mm, Okay, great. But what does God's Word think? Here's my opinion, but what's God's thought? I've I've had friends over the years who'll say this. Well, my thought on this is is here. And I go, yeah, you know what? My thought is really not as good as God's thought. Because his ways are way better than my ways. His thoughts are way better than my thoughts. Are you all with me? That That's really the standard we need to follow. And see, because when Ezra showed up in Jerusalem, he was coming back with expectation that, man, things are going to get great. We're going to be worshiping God. It's going to be cool. And he gets there and he's finding that everyone's just kind of just muddling along, doing their own thing and not letting God be the center of their existence. He says, that can't be. Their choices that were poor extended from the leadership of the temple all the way down to the people But how did Ezra know there was a problem? How did Ezra know that there was a problem in the first place? It's so simple, y'all. He checked himself against God's word. He knew the law of the Lord. He knew what God had taught in the Old Testament. He knew what the commandments were. He knew what the God's word had been revealed through the Pentateuch, through the writings before him. He had already seen it all. He goes, this is what God's told us we can do. That's how he knows. How How do you and I know what God has for us? We gotta know his word. We gotta check ourselves against his word. See, being a student of God's word all his life, he knew what God's word said, what was good, what was not a good, what was acceptable, what was not acceptable, and knowing the standards of God made it easy for him to look around and say, we got a problem. Not y'all have a problem, we have a problem. And the reality broke Ezra's heart. Why? Because it broke God's heart. See, when we give ourselves to the Lord, when we put ourselves in his hand and we say, God, I want to stand with you and your truth and your way and your direction, we're going to find that we're going to have things in our lives that we look around and go, oh, oh, that breaks God's heart. And therefore it breaks our hearts because we're listening to the Lord. See, when we know God's ways and know God's word, we're going to respond in a way that's more likely to be like what God would respond. And we have to decide what's our standard going to be. Is it going to be my standard or God's standard? Is it going to be his truth or my truth? Jesus told his followers in Matthew chapter 5 this. He said, you are the salt of the earth. Just stop right there a second. My doctor tells me to quit using salt. Some of you chuckle because you've already heard the same thing from your doctor. We're not talking about the spice. We're talking about the presence. We, child of God, we are supposed to be the salt of the earth. What does that mean? I don't mean we're basic. It means that we help serve as a preservative in our life. We bring flavor to life. You all with me? You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? You can't restore it, can you? When salt is ruined, it's ruined. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out. The point I want you to catch is this. God calls us to preserve life, to be the people who bring life to those around us by the way we live. 
because we're checking ourselves against God's word on a regular basis. Second, we need to be people who choose to mourn sin. How many of you mourn? When was the last time you had to mourn? Some of you say, I'm still in mourning. A direct outflow of knowing God's word is when we see sin, whether we're involved in it or not, we see it as God sees it and it breaks our hearts. We live in a day, my friends, where we tolerate everything. Everything. I even find myself sometimes saying something like this. I told you I'm preaching to me as much as anything this series is. Oh, well, that's just their decision. That's their choice. That's who they choose to be. And I tolerate it. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with you that we do that? We go, oh, well, it's just the way they are. It's okay. We put up with it. And I understand we live in a pluralistic society and there's all kinds of people in all kinds of positions. But my friends, as a child of God, when we see sin, it should break our hearts. When a person created in the image of God rejects God's offer of forgiveness, lives in the depths of sin, and misses the best life that God has for them, it should break our hearts. And instead we just go, hmm, oh well. How often do we actually see someone living in sin and our heart breaks? For that matter, how often do we look at their lives and just not even see sin anymore? It's just another way of living. One scholar said it this way, until we fully appreciate the ugliness of sin, we cannot appreciate the beauty of God's forgiveness. Until we see it. It'd be like a doctor. Can you imagine going to a doctor and uh, he says, well, you have cancer. And you go, oh. He goes, well, let me give you a hug. You take two aspirin, it'll all be good. Can you imagine that reaction? How would you say, I want another doctor, right? How about this? Are you saying uh, the fireman calls, you, you, the house is on fire, you call and he shows up and he goes, well, you look, it's on fire. And you go, yeah, you're going to do something. He goes, well, it'll burn out eventually. What? He's just tolerating the fire. What's wrong with that? Or how about the policeman who arrives on the scene of a robbery and says, <laughs> boys will be boys. It's just the way it is. We wouldn't tolerate that, would we? And yet... We tolerate sin. Jesus said it plainly in the Beatitudes. He said this, Blessed are those who mourn. God, would you break our hearts for what breaks yours? Would you help us see sin for the way you see sin? Will you help us cry because you cry at our choices? We put up with negativity. We put up with pettiness. We put up with filthiness. We put up all kinds of stuff as a culture. And I've got to tell you, it happens right here in church. Sometimes we go, that's just how they are. Oh, Lord, break our hearts for that. Give us the eyes of Jesus to see the sin around us and to mourn the ugliness. Maybe we need to tear some clothes. Maybe we need to pull out some beard. Maybe we need to sit down in sackcloth and ashes and cry. See, if we're going to see God move, it's going to be because God moves. 
But we can be ready for it. And then the third step is pretty simple. It's one that we don't do anymore, but we probably ought to recover in our culture of Christian faith. And it's this, is to confess our sin to God. You go, well, see, we don't confess sin anymore. You know why? We're not wrong. I'm not wrong, so I don't have to confess anything. You're going, did he just say he wasn't wrong? I'm preaching, guys. Hang in there with me. We say that because we really, in our hearts, think it's okay to do what we're doing. Or otherwise, what? We wouldn't do it. But if we're going to find God moving our lives again, we've got to come to the point where we understand what God says is sin. We see it as God sees it as sin, that we mourn it. And then we say, God, I'm wrong. Confession is simply this, agreeing with God how he sees it. We don't do that anymore. Our hearts are cold. Our backs are bowed up. Confession is agreeing with God that our sin offends Him and breaks fellowship with Him. But we don't see it as sin. We see it as natural tendencies, preferences. The one that gets me is the ones who say, well, this is how God made me. And yet what their choices are doing and the actions they're committing are strictly, clearly against God's word. And they go, oh, well, that's just how God made me. Oh, Lord, forgive us. Break our hearts for what breaks yours. And even those of us who profess to follow God, we find ourselves allowing the mediocrity of sin to flood into our lives and we have tolerance and acceptance and accommodation and it's just the way it is. It's fascinating to me that Ezra told the people of Jerusalem, and we didn't really focus on it in the, in the preaching part of it or the teaching part of it, is that he said, never seek their peace or prosperity. Don't fall into their mess. See, when we seek to get along with the wickedness of the world, what we do is this, we empower it to grow in our lives. We allow it to stay. It's like having cancer and going, we're not going to do anything about it. We're just going to say, I hope it goes away. Or, oh, I'll just embrace it. I'm cancer positive in life. See how silly that sounds? The God of the Bible wants to deliver us from the sins that beset us. For some, it's one thing. For another, it's another thing. But every one of us has something that drags us away from the things of God. The people of Israel's day did it. The people of our day have the same problem. Confess it to God. Agree with Him because He wants something better for us. What we find in our memory verse, and I'm going to read it to you from the English Standard that we've been memorizing in the NIV because it's easier to read there. He said this, After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this. I am convinced that God is not through with the church in North America. And he's not done with this church. But we have to be people who say, God, we want to see sin the way you see it. We're going to confess our sin to you and we're going to agree that we're wrong and we're going to repent of it and walk away from it. And we're not going to tolerate it anymore. And that starts with trusting Christ. Some of you need to do that. I I think I say that every Sunday. 
for most of us in this room, it's not that we need to confess Christ as Savior. We need to agree with God that sin is wrong and that we're not going to tolerate it in our lives any longer so that we can see him move among us again. We're going to give you an opportunity to respond this morning as God might be leading you. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for your hand in this service, the blessings that you give us. And we pray, God, that as we respond in whatever way is appropriate, that you would be moving this morning. We pray for those who need to take a stand. In Jesus' name, amen.